Yesterday, in the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew, we saw how Jesus gagged the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees when they were asking him questions, testing him, tempting him, and trying to find something in his words that they could use against him to bring about his death. They tried that until we're told that no man dared to ask him any more questions. We saw the questions that they talked about. They asked him about whether they ought to be paying taxes to Caesar or not, thinking they had him trapped. They had a question about the resurrection. And they asked him what the greatest commandment was, to which his answer was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And in Mark's account of the parallel passage, he also indicates that the Lord added the word strength there. We said that he's calling the whole person in their whole being to love the Lord. And although I don't think the point was to separate out every individual word, there might be something to be learned by looking a little more closely at the words used there. The word heart in the Hebrew understanding is the core of a person's identity. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Everything comes out of the heart. I see heart in the Hebrew understanding as including the intellect, which produces the thoughts, which produces the words, which produces the actions. It's as a man thinks in his heart that he is. And so it seems to include the intellectual part, That is stressed, although obviously this word is used of other aspects of human nature as well. The word soul, when it's isolated like this, can perhaps best refer to emotion. Jesus in 26 and 38 of this book of Matthew says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. So maybe the emphasis could be put on the emotional part. Mind here replaces might as it was in Deuteronomy 6, and there is a sense in which I think mind is another way to refer to might, because might is such a broad word that has to do with intention and will. It has to do with moving ahead with energy, the energy of might, and the mind has to do with purpose. When we look in the book of Nehemiah, the people had a mind to work, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, and it refers to intention, will, and purpose. And Mark, as we said, adds the word strength, which is all of our physical capacity. So we've got overlapping sense here of everything that it means to be human. Our intellectual part allows us to love intelligently. Our emotional part allows us to love feelingly. Our volitional part allows us to love willingly. And our physical part allows us to love servingly. It carries itself right out into how we act in our physical strength. And we said that a Christian has a consuming love for God. Paul even had that in the seventh chapter of the Roman letter, even though he sinned. He said, I love God. I love what's right, even though I don't always do it. And though I sometimes sin, I hate it. The better part of me hates it. But it was not so with these Jews that Jesus was talking to. And this was an indictment of them. When he said this to them, they were unmasked before everybody who was hearing it. What God wants from you is all your love. And you, these leaders he's talking to, have never given that to God. 
And in the next chapter, 23, he spells it out for them in no uncertain terms. 23.13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 23, verse 25, verse 27, verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? It's somebody who has something on the outside, but nothing on the inside. They were going through the religious motions for what they could get out of it, fulfilling their self-satisfaction, pride, ego, for an appearance of righteousness. But the importance of loving God had never gotten through to them, even though it was not new. It was right out of Moses, as we saw yesterday. And to pound that point home in Exodus 20, where we have the giving of the Ten Commandments, verse 6 says that God shows mercy to thousands of them that love him and keep his commandments. Yes, he wanted them to keep his commandments, but that's the outside. What's on the inside? Love me and keep my commandments because you love me. And it's repeated. When the Ten Commandments are repeated, that same thought is repeated as well in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy with them, who love him and keep his commandments. It's nothing new. It's repeated again in Nehemiah 1 verse 5. God keeps covenant and mercy with them who love him and observe his commandments. There never was a time and there never was a place in the Old Testament where God taught externalism. Never a time when he said, well, I just want you to crank out these rules and I'll accept you. It was always, first you love me, and then as a result of that love, there's the desire and the commitment to obedience. So when Jesus says, gathered in the upper room with his disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, it's nothing new. This is what God has been saying all along. If we're redeemed, we love God. First John 4, 19, we love him because he first Loved us. He first loved us, therefore we love him. And we're defined in just that way in one of the most beautiful definitions that Christians could ever have. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, the very last verse of the Ephesian letter. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Grace to all those who love the Lord honestly who really love him. And the opposite of that is found at the end of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Cursed are those who love not the Lord Jesus Christ. God calls people to love him. Is he worthy of that? Obviously, he's worthy of that. How can you resist loving one who is perfect and who loves you with supreme love? Not loving God is an absolute affront And yet, that's characteristic of the world all around us. They don't love God. In that 20th chapter of Exodus, verse 5, there's a description of some people as those who hate God. We have it again in Deuteronomy 5, verse 9, again in Deuteronomy 32, 41. Them that hate me. It's basic to man, left to his own devices, to resent God and not want God. And you hate God because God comes with demands on your life. God says we're to love him, and if you don't love him, you hate him. Like there's no neutral ground. He that is not with me is against me. So what does God desire from man but to love him? And what kind of love is this? It's a love that meditates on the glory of God, Psalm 18. It's a love that trusts in God's great power, Psalm 31, 23. 
It's a love that seeks fellowship with God. Psalm 63, 1 through 8. It's a love that secures the peace of the soul. Psalm 119, verse 165. It's a love that's sensitive to how God feels. Psalm 69, verse 9. It's a love that loves what God loves. Psalm 119, verse 72, 97, 103, and several other places. It's a love that loves who God loves. 1 John 5, 1. It's a love that hates what God hates. Psalm 97, verse 10. It's a love that grieves over sin. Matthew 26, 75. It's a love that rejects the ways of the world. 1 John 2, 15. It's a love that longs to be with Christ. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. But more than all of that, it's a love that obeys. That's the desire. Even though the obedience is imperfect, the love is there. I love God, but I don't love Him as well as I ought to. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 1, 9, I pray that your love may more and more abound in all knowledge. I love God, but I could love Him more perfectly. There ought to be a reality of love for God so that our whole being loves Him, and yet we still see, as long as we live, a continuing development of that reality. Yes, you're a Christian, and yes, you love God. Yes, in a sense, you love God with everything you are. And yes, you could love God even more. And yes, you should love God even more. And though this love does all the things that we've mentioned, most of all, it's a love that obeys God's word. We are those who love him and keep his commandments. That's the mark of a true believer. He loves God, and that is made manifest in the keeping of God's commandments. Show me somebody who has no interest in keeping God's commandments, and I'll show you somebody who doesn't love him and somebody who doesn't know him. Jesus died for our sin, which is the core, the core of which was that we hated God. If love is demonstrated in obedience, it's obedience that we see the opposite of in disobedience. It's one way or the other. Jesus came as a Savior to pay the price for our lack of love for God. He not only forgives us for our past lack of love, but He infuses us with an ability to love in the present and in the future. That's what's meant in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, when Paul says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. The Holy Spirit given to us at our baptism enables us to further love both God and man. We need forgiveness, but we also need that enablement. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Jesus comes, he pays the penalty, he forgives the unloving sins of the past, and he enables us to love in the present and the future. So yes, as Christians, we love God with everything, and yes, we could love God more. We sin, but that's not what we in our better moments even want to do. We hate sin because we're controlled by our love for God. That's always been God's standard. God wanted people who love him, and keep his commandments. And these people the Lord was talking to that day should have awakened to the fact that they didn't love God that way and that a change was in order. They should have seen it in their self-centered attitudes and in their resistance to God. When you realize that you don't love God with everything you are and that the supreme goal of your life is not to demonstrate love to him, change is in order. 
And in verse 39, still in Matthew 22, the second commandment that he throws in after answering the question about the first one, the second commandment follows the same track. It's of the same nature and it's of the same character. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. This flows from love for God. When you love God right, then you love people right. The Pharisees didn't do that. They bound heavy burdens on people, as we were talking about yesterday. They used people. They abused people. They were cruel to people. And chapter 23 talks specifically about the terrible things they did. They stole from people. They overcharged them. They made merchandise of them. They abused people. They were not just. They took bribes. Because people are naturally not lovers of others. They're self-lovers. Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, means the love of purpose, the love of intention, the love of the will, the love of action. It means I take care of somebody else the same way I take care of me. We're concerned with our own comfort, with the meeting of our own needs. We're concerned with our own goals being met. Do I take care of others with the same alacrity, with the same speed, the same concern? We're to care about others the same way we care about ourselves. We're to turn it around so that we actually get lost in meeting other people's needs. This is basic. It's so basic. Love God, love man. Christianity is not that complicated. Neither was Judaism. It's mainly love God, love man. If you love God, you'll do, you'll do what he says. If you love man, you'll do what he needs. That's life for us. That's the whole thing. Verse 40 sums it all up. On these two commandments, like two nails or two pegs, hang all the law and the prophets. Everything else God said in the Old Testament hangs on these two things. If you love God with all your being and you love your neighbor as yourself, then you don't need any more rules. All the other rules are just a fleshing out of those two. The laws against murder are only necessary because people don't love each other. The laws against idolatry are only there because people don't love God as they ought to. If I love God right, I'll have no idols. If I love people right, I won't steal from them. I won't be unkind to them or slander them. Everything is summed up in these two. And Paul makes that very clear in the 13th chapter of the Roman letter. He that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. You shall not steal, you shall not murder, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there be any other commandment, he says, it's briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. If I'm lost in meeting your needs and making sure everything is all right with you, then you don't need any laws protecting you from me. If I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I don't need extra rules about that either. Everything reduces down to these two issues. And the rest of the rules are just pinpoint descriptions of what these two mean and contain. Love others in a way that causes you to meet their needs as readily, as eagerly, as anxiously, and as completely as you meet your own needs. These are very clear words. These are the kind of people God wants. There's a debilitation that comes to us because of the flesh. So we want to grow and grow that our love may abound more and more. We don't love God or others as perfectly as we should. So we need victory over the flesh.
1 Corinthians 13 is probably the most amazing thing in the Bible on this particular subject. Definitely the greatest thing ever written on the subject of love. The most complete description of love that was ever penned. It's God's own personal depiction of love. It says that anything minus love equals zero. The Bible does not so much define love in abstract terms as it just describes love in action. It's put in 1 Corinthians because love was missing from the church in Corinth. They had real congregational issues. The Corinthians had been born into the family of God, but they had some birth defects that were carried over from their former life, which had been so egregiously sinful. The church in Corinth was just filled with conflict. Much of 1 Corinthians is about how to deal with their personal relationships. They had dragged into the church many attitudes that they had had in their prior life as pagans. There were factions in the church. They were dragging each other into court. There were problems in the homes. Lovelessness was at the core of every sin they were committing. So this 13th chapter is written against a rather dark background. And we obviously don't have time to look at it all, but I do want to look just real briefly at verses 4 through 7 where there are verbs describing action. These are the properties of love, the qualities of love. This is the spectrum of love, understood by how love behaves and not by how love feels. Love is suffering long. Love is behaving kindly. Love is not envying. Love is not boasting. Love is not feeling conceited. Love is not behaving in an unbecoming manner. Love is not seeking its own things. Love is not irritated. Love is not thinking evil. Love is not rejoicing in iniquity. Love is rejoicing in the truth. Love is enduring all things. Love is believing all things. Love is hoping all things. Love is enduring all things. Here is a picture of love in all of its beauty like a flower with 15 petals pushing up through the dirt of the Corinthians' behavior. Love is like a beam of light hitting the prism of Scripture. And that prism divides that single beam of light out into all its lovely colors. These 15 describe the properties that make up the one reality of love. And there's a whole concept of life embodied in this love that impels us to behave like Jesus, which is the goal. Jesus is the only one who could sit for this portrait of love. And it's a magnificent portrait. And we in the church need to just be reprints of Jesus. The things written here are not things that you and I don't understand well enough. We understand them very well. These are things that you and I just don't apply well enough. Put your life against these characteristics of love and match yourself. It isn't really important whether you like this information or not. It isn't important whether this is new information or not. It isn't important whether this is boring or exciting to you. It's only important that you have the integrity and the honesty to put your life up against these qualities and say to yourself and to God, this is me or this is not me. That's the only way we will become the lovers that God wants us to be. If you're in Christ, you've already been given this capacity. We saw it in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. 
As to the love of the brethren, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And that's the message. Excel still more. You already do it. Do more of it. Increase it. Let's just look at a few of the things that he gives us in this list. Love is suffering long. Love is patient. It means extreme patience. Maximum experience before ever coming to anger. This emphasizes patience with people specifically. More than patience with circumstances or patience with events. It's patience with people, which is the hardest kind of patience. It's the ability to be wronged and wronged and wronged again and still have the power to retaliate but not do it. It's slow to become frustrated when dealing with troublesome people. And by the way, this was not a virtue found in the Greek world in the context in which Paul was writing. This was considered a sign of weakness. It's never listed by the Greeks as being among the virtues of any value. Aristotle said that the great Greek virtue is refusal to tolerate any insult or injury and readiness to strike back at any hurt. And this is commonly thought of in our time as the way to be. You were a big man if you really whacked away at your enemies. Culturally, we make heroes out of people who strike back. But this word literally means long temper. It's a strictly Christian concept. It means having a long fuse. Jesus was patient with people, just as God is patient. And aren't we glad God is patient? If he wasn't, we'd have all been gone a long time ago. It's not weakness. Anybody can cave in and get mad. Anybody can seek a pound of flesh and retaliate. Anybody can go for the throat. But love forgives 70 times 7. It's an amazing thing to think about. And the second one of these is a an attribute that complements the first. It's simply kindness. Love is kind. What a simple three-word statement. Love is kind. Long-suffering endures the injuries of others, and kindness repays them with good deeds. Long-suffering will take anything, and kindness will give anything. Kindness is the other side of long-suffering. The root we just means to be useful. Love consciously uses itself for others. That's what Paul meant by spend and be spent. He used himself for others. Kindness is useful to other people. It does for others what they need done. Not always what they want done, but what they need done. It seeks the well-being even of those who harm it. And the context here, of course, is the church. In this world, offenses will come, and they certainly come in the church. Paul does not picture loving in ideal surroundings. This is as practical as it can get. The Corinthian church was an atmosphere in which real love would really shine. The story is told of two men who met on a trail. One was coming from one direction. The other was coming from the other direction. They met on this trail, and the trail was only one foot wide. 
On one side of the trail was a sheer rock wall that went up for hundreds of feet. On the other side of this one foot wide trail was a sheer drop of thousands of feet. And you got two men who need to get past each other. How are they going to get past each other? Well, they tried every way they could think of and nothing worked until finally one man just laid down on the trail and allowed the other man to walk across his body. And then suddenly the problem was solved. Everything could go on as before. Love is the willingness to even be walked on if it serves somebody. That's the way it works in the church. It's not a battle about your rights. It's not a battle about what you think you deserve. It's a battle about how useful you can be to others, even those who offend you. Kindness, usefulness, even in little things, it makes a difference. Sometimes it makes all the difference. Paul goes on through this list and he finally is flying by the time he gets to the final four. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. These are not only lyrically musical, but it's they're hyperbolic. Love is the toughest thing, the most difficult thing that there is. It's not for weaklings, it's for the very strong. It takes the most discipline, it takes the most commitment, it takes the most faith of anything in the Bible to live by love. So Paul is flying by the time he gets to these final four, and they are statements of exaggeration for emphasis. We exaggerate for emphasis. It's a well-known figure of speech. It's not a lie because everybody understands it. If you walk in and say, I'm starving, nobody believes you in a literal manner. And that's why you're not lying, because it's simply a figure of speech that we all understand. Paul does not literally mean all things in the universal sense here. Just as in Mark chapter 1, verse 5, we're told that all the land of Judea responded to John the Baptist. Well, that's not literally true. It's hyperbole, a well-known figure of speech. You see this over and over again because there are 200 figures of speech used in the Bible, approximately. Love obviously has to make some discriminations. So he means all things within the limitations of correct biblical boundaries, and that's understood in the way he's making these statements. Love bears all things. It means to cover with silence, to suppress. Love will do everything it can to cover weakness, to cover failings, to cover sin. Love is reluctant to drag a person into scandal in front of everyone. Love will keep from doing that if it possibly can. It bears all things, not in the sense of putting up with everything, but in the sense of being disposed to cover ugliness rather than to make sure everybody knows about it. We teach our children not to tattle, not to expose every evil. It's a hard thing to teach because it's not natural. So-and-so is jumping on the bed. Some people spend their whole life tattling. When you find a spouse that can do nothing but broadcast the faults of his or her mate, that's not love, because love covers. First Peter 4, 8 says it covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Love throws a kindly mantle over the faults, a kindly covering over the weaknesses and failures of others. How easily we dismiss the faults of those we really love. 
The Corinthians, on the other hand, were just waiting to expose somebody. Love warns, yes. Love rebukes, yes. But it also covers. And it should be a part of our lives to, in general, live that way. Jesus bore our sins in his own body, and that's how he covered them. Love throws a mantle over sin because love has a redemptive element. Love wants to redeem. Love wants to buy back. Love is so emphatic that to some extent it does feel the pain. It's even willing to take the consequences. In the time of Oliver Cromwell, there was a soldier condemned to die. And if you know anything about Cromwell, you know that he was a very adamant man who gave nobody any quarter. This man was, this soldier was condemned to die by execution. He was to die at the ringing of the curfew bell. But this condemned soldier was engaged to a beautiful girl. And this girl came before Cromwell and pleaded the case to him with tears. She pleaded with Cromwell to spare this soldier's young life all in vain. All the preparations were made for the execution. The city awaited the signal at the bell of curfew. The sexton, who was old and deaf, threw himself against the bell rope as he had done for years. He pulled it and pulled it and pulled it. And he didn't realize because he was deaf that there was no sound coming out. Because that girl had climbed to the top of the belfry, reached out, got a hold of and held on to the tongue or the clapper of that huge bell at the risk of her life. And as this sexton tried again and again to ring it, she was smashed repeatedly against the side. But the bell was silent. And eventually the bell ceased to swing and she managed to get to the edge and descended, wounded and bleeding. And Cromwell, meanwhile, was at the place of execution waiting with everybody else for the curfew bell. And he asked, why has the bell not rung? And the girl arrived and told her story, and a poet recorded the result for all time. At his feet, she told her story, showed her hands all bruised and torn, and her face so sweet and pleading, yet with sorrow pale and worn, touched his heart with sudden pity, in his eyes with misty light. Go, your lover lives, said Cromwell. Curfew shall not ring tonight. That is redemptive love. If it can, it will bear even the punishment for somebody else's sin. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love's not suspicious. Love believes the best it can of everybody. It's not eager to pounce and denounce, assuming the worst. It doesn't go through life in a cynical manner. Love doesn't say when somebody does a wrong thing, oh, that just proves he was rotten to begin with. It believes the best because it seeks the best. You often see this in the heart of a mother. A son or a daughter drifts away from the Lord. and It's a source of great heartbreak for everyone. But the mother's heart wants to believe that they'll come back to God. Love tends to believe in you because it wants so much to believe in you. That's how hard love pulls. Sometimes what you believe about a person helps to shape that person. And as soon as somebody wants to make things right again, Galatians 6.1, love is Johnny on the spot to restore them. Nothing is more off-putting than eagerness to believe what is bad. Assuming things to be true that aren't true is terrible. Job's friends believe the worst about it. You're a bad egg, Job. Better fess up. And Job listened to about all of that that he could stand 
before he tries to convince them that they were all wrong. Yes, love sees wrong. Yes, love rebukes it. And yes, love deals with it. But if we err, we're going to err on the side of love and not on the side of judgment. You start hating somebody and you'll start seeing all their faults, real or imagined. You start loving somebody and you start covering. Jesus knew the flaws of his disciples like nobody else, and yet he believed the best about every one of them. I think Jesus was ever tempted to say to his father, Father, I don't know what I'm going to do down here. I've got 12 losers. (laughs) He gave them a job and he sent them out of the world to do it, and they went out and did it. You make the best out of the people that you believe in the most. And the Lord put his whole plan on that basis, and they carried it out. Love covers the worst and believes the best. Love hopes all things. Love is fully optimistic. It just keeps on hoping. And that hope, of course, is in the Lord. As long as somebody's still there, and as long as the grace of God is still operative, then human failure is never final. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Love refuses to accept failure as final. God wouldn't accept it from Israel. Jesus wouldn't accept it from Peter. Paul wouldn't accept it from the Corinthians. Many a loving wife has held on to a husband with nothing but that rope of hope. When all your faith gets clouded in, you have to hold on to hope. I read about a dog many years ago. This dog was in an airport in a large city overseas. And this dog, at the time I read this article, had been there in that airport for five long years because he and his master were traveling someplace and his master got on a plane and took off without him. And that dog just waited in that same corner of the airport. People at the airport gave the dog food and water every day and he just stayed there and hoped. If the attachment of a dog to a man can allow that kind of faithful hope. Certainly love can produce it in us when we truly love. Love waits and waits. And there are enough promises in the Bible to make that hope real. Love endures all things. You can't kill it. You just can't kill it. It survives. It's unconquerable. It can be wounded to the bone, but it still endures. So what about the longest love letter? The longest love letter ever written. This lawyer that Jesus was talking to at the end of the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew, I want to end there because that's where we started. This lawyer asked Jesus that question and he heard the answer and he said to Jesus, you're right. And Jesus said to him, you're not far from the kingdom. If you believe this, you're not far, but believing is one step short of loving. God wants you to take the step of loving him, of opening your heart and saying that you want God to forgive you of your unloving and you want him to enable you to love as you ought to love both God and man. And that answer that Jesus gave was so right and so straight. It was so unmasking of those hypocrites. But that's when Mark says in Mark 12, 34, no man dared ask him any more questions. Why? Because every time they ask the question, they look worse. So they scurried away 
like cockroaches when you turn the light on. And yes, I have lived in those kind of places. But it was before I had the wonderful wife I have now who does not allow cockroaches. I've come home many a time and put the light on. Woo! Gramming around everywhere. That's the way these people were. They couldn't get away from Jesus fast enough because he was showing them up every time he opened his mouth. What about the longest love letter? Ripley's Believe It or Not says that the longest love letter ever written was written in 1875. It was written by a Parisian painter named Marcel de Lecour, and it was addressed to a girl named Magdalena de Villaray. He was so in love with her that he wanted to write, I love you, in French, a thousand times for every year of the Christian era. I love you in French comes across something like J-Tim, I think. If you're French, you'll, you may know better than me, but I think it's J-Tim. So it was 1875, and he wrote J-Tim, I love you, 1,875,000 times. Not being a fool, he hired a secretary to do the actual writing. But not wanting to diminish the expression of his love, he didn't just tell the secretary to write it 1,875,000 times. Rather, he dictated each one, each time, to this secretary separately. So he said it 1,875,000 times, and the secretary wrote it 1,875,000 times. And Ripley concludes by saying, quote, Never was love made manifest by as great an expenditure of time and effort, end quote. Well, that's a nice thought, but it's not true. Because God loved us in a way that could not be measured when he gave us Christ. And when we love God back with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we love God more. And that guy loved that girl. And we express it not by saying something two million times, but by a life of obedience. If you're outside of Jesus Christ today and would come to him in simple trusting faith, or if we can do anything else to assist you in your Christian walk in a public manner, let us know how we can assist you by coming forward to one of these front seats as we stand together. We're going to sing one more song. Doug?